Uh, a big thank you, as always, to Dr. Lowe and our Adult Education Committee for all they bring, uh, bringing meaningful programming to our community. This actually is the sort of the first event um, after Yantif. There's actually the pro program brochure outside. You may even receive it in the mail very soon. Um, and this type of programming is really so, so meaningful to me. I know to so many of us. Um, thank you as well to Seth Thinbird and Ellie Katz for their help with the technical details, setting everything up tonight. And I want to also thank all of our sponsors for this evening, uh, Daniel Niorolo, Jordan and Shani Barber, Reuven and Eliza Elberger, Shimi and Shana Giller, Josh and Tamar Saltzman, Shelly and Chaim Sussman, Simcha and Sarah Yanowitz, as well as two other families who sponsored this evening and did so anonymously. Our speaker this evening, Rabbi Dr. Mondro, maintains a private psychology practice in Yushalayim and in Tinek. He also serves as a mental health advisor at Yeshiva University's Rabbi Isaac Al-Khanim Theological Seminary, where he trains students in pastoral skills and emotional intelligence. He is also the head, of psycholo head psychologist for NCSY Summer, lectures widely in Israel and the United States on topics related to Torah, psychology, and the intersection of the two. Rabbi Dr. Mondro is also a personal friend of mine uh, and really so uh, a, a resource to me. Uh, very, very often, and it's a very, very big privilege to introduce Dr. Alex Mondra. Bershos, Rabbi Krohn, I hope you can hear my voice. Uh, as you can see, I came in from Eretz Israel this morning, and over the course of my day, I used to joke with my children that I'm allergic to Chutzel Eretz. This... Uh, <laughs> is like sort of funny, I guess, but like when I came in, I, when I left, I had a great voice, or whatever voice I had, but not like this. So hopefully, we'll try with the mic. If not, then we're gonna move back to without the mic, and we're just gonna, gonna make it work. Postim b'chod ha'achsanya, b'shevach ha'achsanya, it's customary to open by just honoring and acknowledging the host. And in this case, it, it, it's unique, I think, to, to appreciate what it takes for a shul, young Israel, to host a presentation on this topic. It's a topic that's a very heavy topic, it's a very weighty topic, it's a very real topic. More weighty, or maybe not more weighty, as weighty as we imagine, but more real and more relevant than we possibly could imagine. And I'm grateful to be able to have some sort of chalak, some portion in being able to, to teach, to educate, and to hopefully guide all of us, most importantly, in how we can support the families, the individuals that are struggling and suffering with, with these issues. In particular, as far as giving thanks to the young Israel, I just want to highlight Rabbi Krohn. I won't embarrass him too much, but I want to tell you that aside from being an incredible Talmud Chacham, a true mensch, a good friend, Rabbi Krohn is someone who has an exquisite sensitivity to issues related to mental health. And you're very blessed to have someone like Rabbi Krohn as your leader, as your spiritual guide, as your Rav. should not be taken for granted. So tonight's, tonight's topic is a very delicate one. And I want to tell you that I'm grateful to see such a crowd come out to learn about such an extraordinarily important topic. The goal ultimately of the night is going to be that there's a lot to do. There's a lot that we can do as a community, 
There's a lot that we can do as individuals. There's a lot that we can do as friends, as families. It's something that we have the ability to change, which is the, the rampant, rampant scenarios of both depression and suicide. With that, there's a lot of material that I want to cover tonight. Bezrat Hashem. And so I'm going to ask the following. Typically, I love the give and take. Anybody who's heard me speak, I love the interaction. I love the give and take. And we hope to have the give and take. But before we have the give and take, I just ask your indulgence as we go through the whole presentation because there is a lot of material. If you have questions, please just wait till the end because either A, I might answer the questions in the context of the presentation, but I also... I also want to make sure that I get to the material that I have that, that, that is prepared. And then obviously if the hour gets late and anybody has to leave, I know it's a school day tomorrow, so obviously please feel free, don't feel uncomfortable at all in, 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 in leaving. When I was preparing this presentation and I realized how weighty a presentation it is, I thought to myself, wow, there's a Hebrew word that we have, amus, and burdened by it because it's such a lofty and such a weighty topic and so when I, was, when I was preparing it I said there's no way I can possibly cover everything that needs to be covered but I will tell you that what we're going to talk about tonight is certainly based in research it's based in clinical experience and it's based on many conversations that I've had with people who have suffered with and struggled with both depression and the ramifications of suicide and suicidality. And I only daven that whatever I say can really hopefully begin to change the tide of how we're able to grapple with and embrace these challenges that we have in our community. We say, we people, we try to organize our thoughts, but we should be blessed tonight that whatever we say has the blessing of HaKadosh Baruch Hu to be able to give us the strength to tackle this in a, in a way that helps those that need help. Before we really begin, it's so important that we understand the nature of the language that we use. It's such a fascinating observation. There was a book that was published I don't know, 20 years ago, has anybody heard of this book? It's called Darkness Visible, A Memoir of Madness by William Styron. By a show of hands, anybody heard of the book? This is a book that was highlighted heroically, and I have his permission to say this, by Rabbi Nati Helfgott around the corner when he himself was struggling with depression, and he wrote an article in the Jewish Action. He referenced this book. I immediately pulled the book out, and I read the book. It's a memoir of William Styron's own experience suffering from depression that almost ended in suicidality. It's a very, very important book. If anybody really wants to begin to understand what it means to struggle with depression, they have to read this book. And in the book, William Styron makes the following very interesting observation. He says, I felt the need to register a protest against the word in quotes depression. I'm sorry for those of you who can't see the screen. You know what? I'm going to go without the mic. And if it... No, 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 it's fine. Can, can you hear me in the back without the mic? No? Okay. We're going to go with the mic. We're just, can you see? Okay, great. He felt the need to register a protest against the word depression, a true wimp of a word 
for such a major illness, a raging and dreadful disease. Because, you know, he said it's like very light. Like we all say, oh, I'm feeling a little depressed today. How many of us have said that before? How, he said, how unfortunate is it? It is, says William Styron, that the word depression doesn't even begin to capture the debilitating nature of a raging and dreadful illness. And so when we use the word depressed or depression, we have to be sensitive to the reality that those who do suffer from depression are suffering and struggling, which we're gonna come, we're gonna come to tonight. That's in contrast, you can't see on the bottom of the screen here, but it says the word suicide. When we encounter the word suicide, almost always people cringe and people flinch and people never want to use that word. They try to talk their way around the words, almost the exact opposite of the word depressed. And I'll tell you that over my clinical career, my practice in schools, I've had many children who aren't aware enough to not use the word suicide, say, oh, I'm gonna kill myself. And I wanna just tell you and tell us that we have to educate, the same way that we have to educate about how extreme the word depression is, we also have to educate and understand how carefully we have to use the word suicide, not shy away from it, but use it carefully and appropriately. And if somebody comes to us saying that, we have to say on the one hand, do you really mean it? I care about you. I care about you a lot. I listen to every word you say. I say it in my practice all the time. But I just need to know, are you just saying it? Or do you really mean it? Because if you mean it, then there's a lot to do. If you don't really mean it, you're just having a tough day, then let's try to figure out a different way to express that. And I've had kids express this even as young as fourth and fifth grade. So you're talking about eight and nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds. Somehow they pick it up in the culture. And so we have to realize how we use the language. And that's a big piece of what we're going to do tonight is come out with a different appreciation of what the words mean, what depression means, and what suicidality means. So let's begin. What we're gonna do tonight is we're gonna understand depression. We're gonna understand a little bit about, again, we can't possibly cover everything, what it looks like to a degree, what the symptoms are, what the treatments we have are. And then we're gonna shift and do the same when it comes to suicidality. We're gonna understand what it looks like, what the symptoms are, what the risk factors are, what the protective factors are, what the interventions are that are available. But to be fully truthful, that's just a setup. That's just a setup for the last part of our presentation, which is what can we do to help those, to help those of us, if it's us, to help those of us, if it's our family members, to help those of us in the community, who are suffering and struggling with either depression and or suicidality. So here we go. Depression, classic definition from the Mayo Clinic, it's a mood disorder that causes a persistent feeling of sadness, the loss of interest. It's called a major depressive disorder or clinical depression. It affects how we feel, how we think, how we behave, and it can lead to a variety of emotional and physical problems. You may have trouble doing normal day-to-day -day activities and sometimes you may feel as if your life isn't worth living. I was talking to a friend of mine who suffers, suffered and suffers from depression. He said, sometimes it's just an emptiness. William Styron in the book that I just quoted says, it's a despair beyond despair. 
it's almost impossible to fully capture it in words. But understand that in the ballpark, without getting into statistics exactly, it gets too nitty gritty, about 20% of the American population will have suffered from a prolonged bout of depression. Now, if you just look at the room around us, we probably have around 100 people here. Just try to imagine that everybody from this side of the room, for sure, and then some, so to speak, that's the percentage of a room like our size. We could assume that many people would have suffered if the room was 100 people. In COVID, the research seems to say that all these numbers were inflated, were magnified, excuse me, by 25%. So you add to 20, another 25%, almost a quarter of the American population suffered from depression. But what does that look like? Look at this list, okay? Can, you, can everybody see? Is it okay? I'm sorry, I'm blocking. Sadness, lethargy, I don't have energy, anhedonia, the things that I used to get pleasure from, whatever it may be, in whatever area of life. It could be something like eating certain foods. It could be, it could be um, an event that you used to enjoy, you no longer enjoy. It could be sexual pleasure. Whatever it is, suddenly lost. Low motivation, sleep disturbance, eating disturbance, isolation, difficulty concentrating and making decisions. In teenagers, perhaps the most to be aware of, the most important is this one right here, irritability. Very often, and it's hard to distinguish because teenagers are, can be irritable, but it's important to realize that irritability can be a hallmark of depression, particularly when it comes to teenagers. So you look at this list, it's a pretty vast list, but you say, well, doesn't everyone feel that way? I mean, how many times can we say, I sometimes feel lethargic. I sometimes have difficulty concentrating and making decisions. In fact, maybe I always do. I like being by myself. My children make fun of me about it all the time, to be honest. In fact, when I was here, they noted that perhaps I can count all my friends on one hand. I said, does that make me depressed? No, I might be a different diagnosis, but the, but, but the reality is that yes, I, so at what point is it, well, doesn't everybody feel this way? So this is what we look for, and this is what's important. It's that if you have someone whose mind was initially like this, and by the way, the slides, which are quite artistic, are courtesy of a good friend of mine, Rabbi Avi Wasser, if anybody who was working in Shiva Noam, he was my partner for, for eight years, you'll notice the flavor in the slides are his. He's a tremendously artistically talented person. And so to capture it, it's if our, we're used to functioning like this, and then suddenly there's a marked change, and now we're looking like this. We have to look for discrepancies, we have to look for changes. And the way that we look for the marked change, and please note this and please mark this down, are really three hallmarks of the marked change. Frequency, intensity, and duration. How often do I feel a certain way? How intense is the feeling? And how long does it last for? Frequency, intensity, and duration. And ultimately, if we put all that together and suddenly we're looking like this, is it affecting our functioning? Because yes, do we all have days that we feel a certain way? Yes. But is it is it until the point where we no longer have a job because I can't concentrate anymore? 
that I no longer have any friends because I've isolated myself. I'm so irritable that I'm alienating all those around me. And so that's what we looked for, a marked change based on the frequency, the intensity, and the duration. And when I tell you that it's debilitating, we are talking about not being able to get out of bed for weeks on end, not finding any purpose in life, feeling an inherent emptiness, just samples, a despair, a hopelessness. And anybody here, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but who has experienced it or knows someone who has experienced it will understand why what William Styron said is so true, that depression sounds so parav for such a debilitating, debilitating illness. But yet we're lucky because we have interventions. And I know I'm gonna go quickly, but we're gonna cover a lot. But if you have questions, please ask me on the back end as well. We have, we live, we live in an age, a blessed age, where we have many interventions. But before we get to an intervention, I wanna highlight something which is important for every aspect of mental health. It's called behavioral health. Does anybody know what that means when I refer to as behavioral health? It's one of the first things that I ask teenagers to do and young adults to do when they come in for any issues related to mental health. I ask them about the behavioral health. Behavioral health really has three components. I can't stress it enough. Are you eating well? Are you exercising well? And are you sleeping well? Eat, sleep, and exercise. That behavioral health amazingly can set the stage for all the well-being beyond that. It's not enough often, but it's the starting point. We have therapies. We have therapies that can, that, that can truly research-based, evidence-based, empirically-based, empirically, uh, empirically tested therapies, cognitive behavioral, we didn't have that 30 years ago. We have all variations of these therapies, and I tell you, they work. And we have to, it's almost like, a, it's a mitzvah to, to take advantage of the therapies that we have. And we have wonderful therapists in our community. And for some people, they prefer therapists outside the community for different reasons, understandably. But they're there, and they can help. And lastly, and just as important as we have medications, we have so many variations of medications, and they work. Just to give you a sampling, SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, things that we've heard of, Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro. We have other classes of medication. Wellbutrin is a variation on a medication. There are dozens, and they're constantly being advanced. There's no reason why anyone has to suffer to that degree when we have these interventions at hand. This is a snapshot of what it's like to have depression and the interventions that are available should someone be suffering from it. But let's move on and we're gonna step it up. Huge phenomenon is something called self-harm. Cutting, I, I'm not gonna take a survey today, but I wonder, has anybody heard of self-harm? Yeah. Self-harm is very common amongst teenagers, but it's not the same as suicide. In fact, we'll see what self-harm is referred to as is called a non-suicidal, a non-suicidal self-injury. 
Because the intent is not to kill oneself. This is extraordinarily important. Self-harm, such as cutting, any type of self-destructive behavior, not aimed to kill oneself. And I apologize if you can't see it, I'll read it on the, what's on the screen. Self-harm has different components. Why would someone cut themselves? It's a phenomenon amongst adolescents, especially across the entire country, across the world. I'm the head psychologist for the NCSY summer programs. We encounter it every summer. And you wonder, why would anybody do that? Like, why cut oneself? The goal is not to end their lives. But I want to share it with you, because if we share, we understand, we can then give support. That's the theme of the night. Really, we would say in halacha, shnaim shem arba, there are two, two essential categories of why people hurt themselves without the intent to die that really have four goals. Self-harm can have both a positive effect. Positive doesn't mean, in this case, a good effect. What positive means is it's an active way of manifesting a message. It means that, for example, if I were to cut myself and you see the scar, why would I do it? Because I want to create a feeling that I'm alive. That if, God forbid, you go back to the previous slides, I'm so depressed that my life is empty and I'm experiencing despair beyond despair. It's so bad that I'd rather cut myself. And, and I mean cut myself. Some cuts are very deep. Because that way I can feel the sensation that I'm alive rather than just feel nothing. It's an incredible thing. A person can feel so numb to life, they'd rather cut themselves. But there's a second positive message. And this is another theme of tonight. They want to communicate an idea to us. When a person's cutting, they're saying, look at me. I'm struggling. This is not a game. I'm cutting myself so that you and you and you and whoever and me, so that you'll notice that I'm struggling. I need help. That's a message I'm communicating. That's a positive effect to make me feel alive and to communicate a message. But another category of the NSSI, of the non-suicidal self-injury, self is a negative effect. It means I want to remove something. And perhaps this is even more dramatic and more sad, which is that I'm in so much psychological pain, the only way to diminish the psychological pain is by giving myself self-inflicted physical pain. And if I can have that physical pain, then I won't feel the psychological pain. An amazing statement. And then the last, the most benign of all these four is that sometimes people do it just to stop a behavior. I pick my nails or I, I have a habit that I do with my hands, so in order to stop it, I'll, I'm gonna squeeze or hurt myself as a signal in my body to stop it. But if we see someone self-harming, understand the likelihood is they're sending us a message about where they are psychologically. It's nothing to be afraid of, but it's something to be aware of. That is in contrast to suicidality. Suicidality is the, and we have to be comfortable using these words. We'll use dramatic words. Suicidality is the risk of killing oneself, usually indicated by ideation, the thoughts about it, or the, the fleeting thoughts about it, 
the intent, especially as evident in the presence of a well-elaborated plan. In fact, there are usually four steps in a certain thing when we do a suicide inventory, what we look for. But if we understand this, we'll understand the process. The first is ideation. And you know what the truth is? Many of us may have had a suicidal ideation. I'm, in, I'm having such a bad day. I, I wish I weren't here. It's a fleeting thought. It goes in, it goes out, and then we're done. You can think to yourselves if we've had those thoughts. But then we start to dig a little deeper. But is there a plan? Do I have an idea of how I want to do it? Ah, yeah. There's, I, I own a firearm. I live on a high story of a building. I start to have a plan. Then we start to say, well, is there a behavior that backs that up? One of the greatest risk factors will come to in a moment of suicidality, of, of, of the likelihood of suicide, is a past failed attempt. I tried this, it didn't work. But that's a behavior. Am I doing anything that looks like I'm preparing myself? Am I buying objects that look like they may be used in a suicide attempt? I was talking to one of my friends in Eretz Israel, from South Africa. He said there's a, the, 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 uh, there's no reason why anybody would know this, I had no idea. He said the weapon of choice in South Africa for suicide is to take battery acid and to drink battery acid. So if you would see somebody buying battery acid, you got concerned. That's a behavior. And then there's intent. Intent is when, no, no, I, it's no longer a thought, a plan, or a behavior, but I, I'm, I'm really now going to do it, God forbid. And we look for it, and we see it. And that's suicidality. And it's not so uncommon. This year 2020 was the last research that I could find. 45,000, almost 46,000 people in America died by, died by way of suicide. That's approximately, math is a little bit off, about 132 a day. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people, and, and, and the hardest part is that, that the numbers are staying stagnant. They're going up, and then they're staying stagnant. They're not going down, even though it really is a crisis in the country, and the country is aware of it. And that's why we're here tonight, to try to address it. Now, I've heard multiple times, so how do you know? How do you know if there's a likelihood? How do you know if someone, God forbid, is going to commit suicide? The answer typically is, we don't know. We're not in a VM. Psychiatrists will tell you they're very, 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 very bad predictors. So we live in the world of risk versus protective factors. And again, bear with me because we're going to get to the real stuff, which is what we can do about all this. Risk factors include serious illness, legal problems, substance abuse, a history of depression. It's a risk factor, a stronger risk factor potentially. But again, many people have depression and don't go this route. Social isolation is a very important one. Loss of relationships, bullying, a sense of hopelessness, living in an unsupportive environment. Those are all risk factors. And when we do an assessment to know is someone at risk of suicidality, of suicide, we look at all the risk factors. But then we shift 
And we also look at the protective factors. And almost in direct opposition to the risk factors, we have the protective factors. There are those that relate to the individual, a sense of purpose, coping skills, problem-solving skills, and identity. We have relationship protective factors, support from partners, friends, families, feeling connected to others. Research has shown that, that larger families typically have lower rates, there's more connection. But again, it's, a, it's just a protective factor. There's no individual individual, it's general ideas. There are community protective factors, feeling connected to school, school community, high quality physical and behavioral health care. These are all put into the equation to know, should we be concerned? Can we predict? No. But can we know if we should be concerned? Yes. So, but then we have to know, and we'll review all of this in a moment, but there are interventions. Number one, I was, I was speaking this past week to a, to a father whose daughter died by suicide. And he, was, he said to me, it's so important that we create an environment in which it's understood that people can also reach out even if they're suffering, they can reach out. Not to put the burden on them, God forbid, but that they have to know that it's okay to reach out. So important. Lifelines. This is a new creation. It's yet to see how effective it is. Has anybody heard of this, 988? Okay, when you go home, look up 988. The Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. It was just started around June or July. And instead of having a very convoluted 1-800 number for a suicide prevention hotline, they, they decided, you know, who's going to know that number? So they created a national hotline, 988. And I really encourage you, go look online. It, it roots you, it roots a person automatically to one of 200 call centers in the country that guide in the call center to the care that a person can need and helps walk them through. And they even tell you on the web, what a model conversation might look like. And there are more than that, but that's an example of a lifeline, 988. Sometimes people need to be hospitalized. It's hard, but in that hospitalization, they can, be, they can learn new skills, they can get medications, more extreme interventions. There are therapies, most notably, dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, it is empirically proven to be successful. It helps, it, helps, it, it helps children, it helps adults, but we have the therapies. And of course, medications. There are medications, it's more controversial, the research, but there are medications that can help. Okay, I wanna do a two minute review. So we noted the importance of being sensitive to the language of depression versus suicide. Depression is a disorder that affects probably about a fifth, maybe even a quarter of, of the population in America. These are the symptoms to the point where with this marked change, based on the frequency, the intensity, and the duration, a person can't function or is functioning in a, in a very different way. Behavioral health therapy, medication, we have, we have interventions. Self-harm, 
just important to know, but I wanted to use it as an opportunity to educate, is either a way of creating a feeling, communicating an idea, getting rid of an unwanted, or, or stopping, stopping a different activity. But suicidality, the risk of killing oneself, can be broken down to at least four components, ideation, plan, behavior, and intent. The numbers are very substantial and they're stubbornly high and not going down, unfortunately. We have an, we have an equation, not really. Are we, should, we, should we be worried? We look at risk factors, we look at protective factors, and we have to know, should we be concerned or not? And these are the interventions that we have. Connect with others, 988, other lifelines, hospitalization, therapy, and medication. I know I'm talking a lot, I hope it's okay, but now I wanna get into really what tonight is about. This is something that I came across several years ago. And here, if, you were, if you're tired, if you're ignoring my, my lecture of Psych 101 on depression and suicide, this is something that you, I hope is worth coming for. And I think that it can help us in our community, not just to help those who are suffering from suicide, but it can help people in general in our community. You understand what I mean? There's a fellow here named Thomas Joyner, by a show of hands. Anybody ever heard his name? Thomas Joyner, I had the privilege of spending a day studying with him on the topic of suicide about five or six years ago. And he found that he studied, he's, he's, a, he's a professor, a clinical professor in the university, in Florida State University. And unfortunately, Lo'aleinu, sometimes they say in psychology that research is me-search. And for him, his research was his me-search. His father died of suicide. And he'll tell you openly that he wished that he knew then what he now knows. And like any theory, it's up for discussion. It's up for machloket, for argument. He wanted to create this as a theory of everything and all of suicide. Whether it will cover all of it, I don't know. But I want to tell you what his principles are. The interpersonal psychological theory of suicide. It's just important to be able to see the slide for a moment if you can see it. I'm going to speak loud just for a moment so I can point. Can you hear me now if I speak this out in the back? Yeah? Okay. He said, we have to make a distinction between those who desire suicide and those who are capable of suicide. Those who, as I mentioned earlier, can have what we call suicidal ideation, maybe even have suicidal plans, but don't follow through on a substantial attempt. And so what he did was, he studied all the reasons why people attempt suicide. A serious, you can't see in the bottom here, it says a serious attempt of death by suicide. Those are what we call distal factors. Anything outside over here that leads to these two categories. It's so important. Either a sense of what he calls a perceived burdensomeness, it would be better off if I weren't here. I am a burden on society. I'm a burden on my family. But it's perceived. It doesn't mean that it's real, but in their mind, they view themselves as being a perceived burden. And, he said, if you couple that with a sense of what he called a thwarted sense of belongingness, you know, you can't see, but it says thwarted belongingness, a sense that I don't belong, 
You put those two together, that's going to lead someone to desire to kill themselves. The example that I like to use, which I think captures it, is a veteran who returns from war and they're injured, let's say, or they have post-traumatic stress disorder and they need a tremendous amount of intervention. They perceive themselves as burdens. They feel, oh my gosh, I'm a burden on society. Doesn't matter the Israeli army and the American army, they come back, they perceive themselves as a burden. But I want you to think to yourselves of anyone you might know in your life who might have said those words. It would be better without me. It would be easier without me. Again, not because it really would be, but because it was perceived that way. And that, when it's coupled with a sense of thwarted belongingness, an army veteran who valiantly represented our country wherever it was, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, anywhere, comes back, they're not integrating into society properly. There's a thwarted sense of belongingness. They're no longer part of the group and you can think to yourselves again, members of all different types of communities in our world who don't feel like they belong. And he said, if you put those together, the perceived burdensomeness and the thwarted belongingness, that leads them to desire suicide. He said that's not enough though, because that doesn't explain why everybody here doesn't attempt suicide. So here he added a very important piece. He said that there has to be a capability of suicide. It's not on the slide, oh it is here. An acquired ability for self-harm. Human nature is such that we don't want to hurt ourselves. It's almost a protective capability that we have that we don't want to. So we have to almost train ourselves in a certain way in order to be fearless about pain, injury, and death. So now let's go back to the army veteran. The army veteran who's fighting on the front lines, who is exposed to death, is exposed to physical pain, develops a fearlessness about pain, injury, and death. And it's in that overlap right there that we begin to see a serious attempt of death by suicide. And he uses this, he tries, big machlokas, but I've heard him, he tries to apply it to every area of attempted suicide. But, so you'll say, well, okay, what does that do for us? But I want you to bear this in mind. I want you to bear this model in mind. Bear this model in mind. I want to tell you, I'll tell you some stories in a moment. But this was, this was his theory. Now, <clears throat> with that in mind, uh, yeah, let me take some questions. Let me break, yeah. In that theory, does he say that there really needs to be both of the perceived burdenness or for oneness, or enough of each, including have zero of one, that it reaches some kind of amount? So it's an interesting question. The question was, does he really feel you need both or just one? I think he feels, if I understood correctly, that you need both, although I've seen subsequent research which highlights that the, that the perceived burdensomeness is the one that's really driving. I've seen subsequent research on his materials. It's really being studied to this day 
you know, actively. But that the perceived burdensomeness is really what's driving it. But he feels both. Okay, now, with this in mind, this was just the background. And really why I'm here, even though that was the first 45 minutes, the question is, what can we do? And here, I want to tell you that, that I, aside from obviously studying and dealing with cases, I'm, I'm grateful for many people who have shared with me their input, those who were affected by this directly in their lives. And it's not just based on research. And it's really based, in, and I hope I'm doing it justice, on, on what people who have experienced Lo'aleinu in some form have felt really would have changed or that they want to change. And it's all, by the way, completely matched in the research as well. So now we're here, November 6, 2022. What can we do? The first thing is to connect to people. I cannot stress it enough. To connect to people in every and any way possible. Going back to our slide, listen to the study that Dr. Joyner did. Knock my socks off. In the late 70s, when the army veterans from Vietnam were re reintegrating back into the country, they wanted to know about what could bring down the levels of attempted suicide by army veterans. And they said, well, you know, we have all these children. I remember doing when I was a kid to Israeli soldiers, like writing letters from schools to the soldiers. And they wanted to know, does it have any effect? Of course, okay, so it's a beautiful exercise. It's an, ex it's an expression of gratitude. I feel very strongly about whether it's to our Israeli soldiers, to our American soldiers. But does it affect suicide rates? And they found unequivocally that the answer was yes. That army veterans who received letters from children had lower rates of suicide than those who did not get the letters. So Dr. Joyner said, and I heard this from him, I hope I'm quoting it correctly, I heard it from him directly, Balpeh. He said that he wanted to replicate the study with army vets coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And he wanted to know that what it would be instead of sending cards from schools, what if we sent them text messages? And then he even upped the game. What if they were automated text messages? Would that affect the suicide rates? And the answer was yes. They no longer felt a sense of thwarted belongingness because people were reaching out to them. And presumably, that affected this equation, and they no longer, depending on the content of the text, felt like a perceived burden. So when I say connect, I mean reach out to people. If there are people who are struggling, we'll come to it in a moment, what we're going to look for. We need to connect. But I want to tell you something. This does not apply. We should not need a risk of suicide for this. We live in a very big community, Baruch Hashem. There's no reason why anyone, whether they are a risk, at risk for suicide or not, should ever feel isolated. And so we should go home and go through your contacts. And before Shabbos, just say, hey, I haven't seen you, or I have seen you. Just wanted to say hi. 
You see, there's no value to that. But trust me, this shows us just how valuable a simple WhatsApp, a simple text can be. Next, and these are not small issues. Notice, pay attention if you notice that someone davens by you on a Shabbos or on a weekday and they're not there for a period of time. Notice, if you notice that someone's behaviors are different than they were. Notice, be aware, be aware of changes in behavior. Be aware of changes in moods, people that you're close to and you notice certain things. You have to pay attention, we have to pay attention to those who are around us. We can't be so consumed in our lives that we don't notice changes. Like we mentioned earlier, whether it relates to depression or suicidality or self-harm, we have to notice. If someone's starting to speak in a certain way, you'll be better off if I'm not here. Notice. We have to be aware of those who are around us. And then once we notice, number three is ask. Don't be afraid. I heard this a lot, a number of times. Don't be afraid to say, first of all, hi, I noticed you haven't been around. And then if the conversation goes in a direction or if you have a relationship with someone that you're noticing these behaviors, giving away their materials, saying things like, I wish I wasn't, I weren't here. I'm in such terrible despair. Don't be afraid to say something to the effect of, again, if you're in a relationship and you feel like you can say this kind of sentence, have you con- are you considering hurting yourself? Have you considered taking your life? And people say, well, is that gonna plant the seed that suddenly they're, they're now going to think, oh, maybe I should take my own life, I should commit suicide? Across the board, both in terms of research and in terms of people that I spoke to, the answer is absolutely not, absolutely not. It just shows that you care. It shows that I want you here. And it also shows that we're gonna partner in this together because that's the follow-up. Don't be afraid to appropriately ask the question and use it in the right way. Number four, perhaps the most important possibly, is empathize and don't judge. I'm sorry you can't see it, it empathize and don't judge. What that means is, you know, there's people who are struggling, I heard this so many times, they're worried they're gonna be judged, we're failures, the parents are failures, we're weak, we don't have the fortitude. All a person should hear is, I'm struggling. And that deserves our empathy. Wow, not, not our sympathy, not a nebuch, an empathy. Wow, you must be in so much pain and I'm here with you. And far be it from me to ever judge you, God forbid. But I want you to know that I'm here with you. 
And empathy also means try to understand their experience. Try to understand the pain that they're in and try to understand what it's going to look like from their perspective. The father of a teenager who Lo'aleinu died by suicide told me that there's no way his daughter wanted to die. But she just didn't understand. She's a teenager. She didn't understand the finality of what she was doing. But she was in so much pain that she had to get rid of the pain. And so that's why, for example, when I go back to understanding the interventions, we don't need a permanent solution, so to speak, to a short-term, in quotes, very difficult issue when we have all of these interventions that are available potentially, that are constantly being reworked and constantly being tested. And so we need to empathize and we need to never ever judge. Not judge the ones who are suffering and of course not to judge the family of those who are around them. And last, I'm sorry you can't see it on the bottom, is we have to create a community of understanding and acceptance. It has to be, it has to be that we live, that we create in our community. And like I said when I opened, and I'm not just saying it for saying it, when you have a leader like Rabbi Kron and a shul like the Israel of Tinek, this is where it starts, where we create a community that says no matter what goes on here, no matter what struggle you have, I am not judging you. I accept you. Thank you for sharing with me that struggle. And I believe truly, if a hundred plus people in this room begin to practice these five steps, it has a ripple effect that's exponential, not just multiplicative. Imagine. I told this to one of my friends in Yerushalayim. He told me, his wife's a particularly sensitive person, that during COVID, she texted 100 people every single day. Could you imagine? 100 people just to check in and say hi. Now imagine if we didn't do 100. Imagine if the 100 plus of us did five. That's 500 people. And that spins on itself. Just imagine what we could do to change the fabric of our community, particularly as it relates to these issues. Okay, we're an hour in. I know it's late. Let me take questions before I have a closing thought. Any questions? Yeah. Excellent question. The question was, where do the stats fall as far as the Jewish community relative to America? As a general rule, I can't answer this specifically. As a general rule, we don't have good statistics in the Jewish community. But it's just very hard to get. And who's considered part of the Jewish community? And are Jews going to be honest about it, you know, because of stigma and all those different things? But I, as my other general rule is that I think whatever the statistics are in the regular population, they're more or less the same in our community, if I had to guess. And I would imagine that people in, and people in psychology and psychiatry and sociology would agree with that observation. I think overall, I think. 
Yeah. Correct. Yes, those are actually, everything you just listed are actually included. I don't know if it was on the list here, couldn't leave a full list, but yes, those, everything you just listed aren't included. One of the highest things, I don't know if it was on the list, and I apologize, and I thank you for, for adding this, is there is a genetic component to it. And, and the, the general rule, based on his model, where the genetic piece would be, would be is the ability to, to acquire the ability to self-harm could be a genetic piece or not, but genetics does play a piece as well. And so we, have, we do have to be careful about all of that. Correct. Again, but it's a risk factor. We don't know where it's going to lead, but it's a factor. Yeah. Um, going back to... <coughs> you want me to go back? About, um, yeah, in Burdensome, whether the, um, being Burdensome was always part of the formula. I'm just wondering if you comment on um, LGBT suicides or transgender suicides, where at least the... Uh, Correct. Correct. Right. No, no. So, so it's it's a good question. So again, you you wonder. Well, again, what would lead to it? We can't we can't speak about everybody in every population, right? But if there's a, if there's a higher rate, so you would start to look at it, and you would say, well, forwarded sense of belongingness, absolutely. The perceived burdensomeness. So you have to question again. It's perceived. How do they view themselves? It, 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 again, but again, you have to dig. You have to say, where does the guilt come from? Does the guilt come from the fact, oh my gosh, my, 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 fa- my family is mortified by this. They'd rather, again, let's have that phrase, they'd be better off if I weren't here. Again, chas v'shalom. But again, it would have to, again, according to him, it would fit into this general category. Correct. Even if the overwhelming sense would be authority belongingness, it, it, again, but just because you brought up that example, just now imagine... Imagine what our role is, chas v'shalom, to ever set up a context where somebody feels this way. So even if we, the Torah says this, or we disagree with that, whatever it is, but it's still our burden, our responsibility to make sure that they do not feel a sense of thwarted belongingness or a perceived sense of burdensomeness. I just had a father tell me that his son, who is part of that community, davened right next to him in a right-wing show on Yom Kippur. And I said, Ashreinu. He didn't know I was giving this presentation. I said, Ashreinu. And everybody knew. But I was like, okay. That's, that's our job. Not an easy one always, but that's our job. Yeah, Rabbi Kron. A lot of people ask the question, okay, so I'll text somebody and I'll reach out and I'll notice, but like I don't feel like I... Yeah, I get so nervous to like say something, or how do I? How can how can I have a conversation with somebody that people oftentimes just feel like I don't know what to say? Oh, great! So what is your response to that? So my Crohn's question is: So you reach out, Mandro said, send the text, and then the person replies, like I I really care, like I really like meaning it's not just a pro forma text, as nor should it be. Can we do coffee? Let's, let's sit down and talk about this. And then in the context of the coffee, I'm elaborating on your question. The person says, you know what? Thank you for reaching out. I needed somebody to talk to. And then they proceed to unload on you. 
So I want to tell you something, something I learned, and, and Rabbi Kron, you'll tell me if you agree. I learned this in the rabbinate. I was the rub of a, of, of a shul for a number of years, and a family was going through horrific sorrows. Literally, there were no words. I was very young. I was in my mid-twenties. And I visited them in the hospital, and they started telling me about what was going on. I knew what was going on. And I felt exactly like you said, Rabbi Kron. I was like... There was nothing I could say. But what I learned in those moments is to do the following. I'm here with you. I, I don't have the answers. But number one, I want you to know that I'm here with you and I'm not going to leave you. I'm here with you. I don't have to always say something that's a very 20th century, 21st century construct. We find it, for example, in somebody loses somebody. The greatest nechama, almost always, is not by what anybody says at the base of it. I don't, I don't speak from experience, but I've heard this, and I, you guys can tell me. It's by people just showing up, and they sit there as long as it takes. No words, but you just sit there. And you want to say something, you say, look, there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know what to say, but I want you to know that I'm here with you and I'll stay with you. And if you want to call 988, we'll call it together. And if you want to call your doctor, you call a doctor together. And if you want to go and have a, you know, go do this together, we'll do it together. Whatever it takes. You don't need to have what to say. In fact, very often, if we think that we have what to say, we're probably wrong. <laughs> we shouldn't say it. Less is more. As we say in halacha, kol amosif goreya, it's better to say less. But just the presence of being there can save a person's life. That's my take. Any other questions? Yeah. It's an excellent question, and I think it's a case-by-case, case. I really think it's case-by-case. Case. I think there's a way, for example, to educate teenagers, let me go back just for a moment, that we, we, we can educate teenagers who are struggling. It's very important to connect with others. And what I meant by that on the slide is, if they're struggling, there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to share that I'm struggling. I'm suffering. I have to have an address. It has to be that whether it's a school, whether you know, family relationships are somewhat complicated, but it could be a parent. Hopefully it's a parent. It's not always. It's just the way things are. It could be a school psychologist. It could be a rov. It could be somebody who's set, who's set up in their lives. I'll tell you, I hear it very often, you know, thank God I've been blessed to be the head of psychologist for NCSY Summers for the past, I don't know, six, seven years. This past summer, can I know her, over two and a half thousand kids in our programs. And we have kids who, you know, as you can imagine, they're away from home, no pressure from school, a big piece of these programs to be able to reflect and to think and to grow and to develop very healthy 
appropriate relations, relationships, and they share. And in the context of sharing, it comes up. And then those responsible younger, young adults then go bump it up. And we're very clear, we train the staffs. Every year, we train our NCSY staff. If somebody comes and says this, you listen, almost exactly what I'm telling you now. And then you bump it up. You're 19, and the 16-year-old is telling you this, so you go to somebody who's 21, and the 21-year-old eventually climbs the rank and it comes to the psychologist. It might go to the parent, we have to make decisions, depends. But you can educate towards that. And I think it's very, very healthy in the appropriate, safe environment to know that they can share, and we can hear, and vice versa. Okay. Let me wrap up with just one thought, and uh, I want to know. I'm here if anybody wants to talk about anything else. I, you know, I tried to cover in just over an hour whatever I could that I think will hopefully be able to change in many ways the fabric of parts of our community. Whenever I think about this topic, I'm always struck by a quote from Rabbi Salavichik. Rabbi Salvechik says, see the top, quite often a man finds himself in a crowd among strangers. He feels lonely. No one knows him, no one cares for him, no one is concerned with him. It is an existential experience. What's the value, what's the worth of, what's the value of my existence? He begins to doubt his worth. This leads to alienation from the crowd surrounding him. Suddenly, someone taps him on the shoulder and says, Aren't you Mr. So-and-so? I've heard so much about you. In a fraction of a second, his awareness changes. An alien being turns into a fellow member of an existential community. What brought about the change? The recognition by somebody, the word. To recognize a person is not just to identify him physically, it is more than that. It is an act of identifying him existentially as a person who has a job to do that only he can do properly. To recognize a person, says the Rav, means to affirm that he is irreplaceable. And we have to realize that every one of us, every member of our community, everyone with whom we interact, like the Rav says, he wrote this in 1978, it was published in 1978, is irreplaceable and all that it takes is the word we should be blessed to hopefully change the nature of our community to give those who need the support the support that they need and Hashem should help us to do all of that I wish you all a good night